The following is a basketballnews.com production. Welcome to another edition of the Postcast, powered by basketballnews.com. My name is Jameson Wells, your host, alongside three-time champion, James Posey. Pose, what's good? What's good, J-Mo? Not much, all is well. Uh, today, we're joined by a special guest that was a three-time NBA All-Star, champion, uh, NBA champion, creator of the shimmy, and one of the original straight Dutch <laughs> fours. Uh, also, he is the best athlete out of Mount Carmel High School, regardless of what Donovan McNabb has to say. Welcome to the show, Antoine Walker. Antoine, what's good? <laughs> what's good? Thanks for having me on the show, fellas. I appreciate it. Hey, Boogie, what's <laughs> good, man? Man, not much, baby. Enjoying life, baby. Trying to get through this pandemic. Right. Hey, we all, hey, we all. I see you got, I see you got that eight in the background looking good, boy. Oh, yeah, you know I'm going to definitely have that, man. You know, that's second home, Post. You know about Boston. Second yes. home there, baby. Already. <laughs> hey, so, listen, where did your love of the game come from? Oh, shit. Um, that came from like six years old, man. I wouldn't just say it was strictly basketball. I think it was love for sports. You know, just when, you know, growing up in the, you know, in humble beginnings, you just try to do anything to kind of keep yourself out of trouble. So I, I played baseball, football, basketball, and, and, and tried all three sports until, you know, you get good at one of them. And I did that for probably until I was 12 or 13. But I was like one of those things that was unique by me. I was one of those kids that was tall for his age. So it was kind of like, you know, as I was continuing growing. So I went to, I went to high school 6'4", you know what I mean? So I went to high school tall. So that's kind of when it was like, okay, it's time to stop playing baseball, trying to, trying to play football. It's, trying to, it's time to lock in on basketball now. So I would say my love just came growing up about between 6 to 14. And then after 14, it took off. Once I got to high school, I just zoned in and locked in and, and, and focused strictly on basketball. So, you know, Shot Town, y'all got a lot of talent in, in the shot. So, mm-hmm. growing up, who were your influences? Could you talk about that? Then also, you know, like I said, Shot got that talent. What other players were you impressed with? Um, Chicago was weird because um, I don't know how every state was. I don't know how it was for you, but we covered high school basketball um, at a very young age. So, you was getting ranked as like a fifth grader. Uh, how good you were. So you, it was, it was weird because, so you, you knew like who the best players was, but for me growing up, it would be, you know, the Mark Aguirre's, Isaiah Thomas, um, those guys, you know, really stood out. And then it's like a bunch of guys that didn't ever really make it. Uh, the Jamie Brandon's, uh, Marcus Liberty's, um, you know, guys that were like kind of landmarks in Chicago, you know, Ben Wilson. I'm, I'm sure you heard the Ben Wilson story. Um, so those were guys when I was growing up, I kind of like watched and wanted to be like and, and emulate. Um, so it's, it's, it's the history is there, but what makes Chicago special is that it got covered at such a, a long, you know, a young age. Like I was the best eighth grader, but how you judge an eighth grader? You know what I mean? So it was kind of like one of those type of things that, you know, when you, when you grew up in Chicago, they put so much pressure on you um, mm-hmm. to be good, which is good. It makes it really, really competitive. No, Twan, you're from Chicago, one of the best hotbeds in the country. Uh, mm-hmm. You got Chicago, L.A., D.C., uh, Seattle area, of course, New York, New Jersey. Uh, where do you rank Chicago amongst all the other uh, hotbeds in the country? 
Well, back, I mean, I, I would be biased back in the day to say Chicago, which I thought we were. When I was probably in the prime of my career, we probably had, you know, 20, 30 pros current playing in the NBA. Um, I think the talent levels went down a lot. Um, but I still put us in that top four, um, you know, depending on how you want to shake the order up. You know what I mean? From, you know, New York, you know, Seattle's came on strong um, over the last 10 years with their ball players. I was in California, but we used to be strong, um, and we used to have had that had that the reputation of having uh, some of the best basketball in the world. So I grew up in that that era where that basketball and where those guys when we were twenty five thirty, and Pose got some of that summer league run when we used to play in that that summer league and 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 pick up ball. Well, I mean. You lose the game. A chip too. Uh, hey, I got a, I got a chip now. My first time, I got a chip on, on my team now. You, yeah, man. that's what I'm saying. So, you, you're, you're, you, I remember playing pickup ball in Chicago. You, mean, you lose that first game, you might not get back on the court for two games. You know what I'm saying? It was, it was that much talent floating around Chicago. So, I'm always going to be biased that Chicago's best. But I would say, you know, we fell off a little bit over the last couple of years. But for the main state, we're definitely in the top four. Um, you know, with some other cities that have came up, but we we in the, we in the we in the meat and potatoes of it. No, it's one. A lot of guys that are really great players from Chicago, they don't stay at home. Uh, obviously, you went to Kentucky. Mm-hmm. Anthony Davis went to Kentucky. Mm-hmm. Dwayne Wade went to Marquette. Uh, why aren't guys staying home to go to college? Because you guys get a lot of talent, but why are guys leaving the state? Um, on a serious note, I think one. I think a lot of guys want to get out of Chicago because of the, the violence. Sometimes that, that usually um, pushes guys away and maybe want to just try something different. Um, the basketball part, we just haven't had really great programs. I mean, DePaul is an NC school, was good at one point, but it's, it was so long ago where they were, um, you know, I think you remember Q Richardson and Bobby Simmons and all those guys on the same team. I think they made a little run maybe to the Sweet 16. Um, Illinois. Um, it's a different animal. Um, I thought about going to Illinois. Um, it was probably my second school um, to go to Illinois. But Illinois um, has had different phases. They had the phase with Nick Anderson, Kenny Battle, Kendall Gill were really, really good. Then they had a break where they wasn't good. And then D. Brown and Darren Williams and Luther Head, those guys brought them back, like I think, 05, 04, 05. But it just haven't, it hasn't been a consistent talent pool um, there. And I think they've done a terrible job of hiring in-state coaches, guys that know the guys, guys that have the familiarity with the high school coaches, with the AAU programs. Um, they just haven't done a good job. That's why I think a lot of guys really leave. So you chose Kentucky. Was that, was that one of the factors for you? And what were your, I say, your top three uh, schools? And I know at the, at the time it was Rick Pitino. He was the coach. Mm. Is that a big part of, you know, just going to, I guess, UK in their tradition a little bit, or was it the coach as well? No, for me, it was, a, it was an honest, it was an honest uh, recruiting process. For I, I, I really thought about staying at home. My high school coach went to DePaul, so he was obviously wanting me to go to DePaul. And Illinois was, you know, one of the schools. Obviously, I had been following and stuff, and, you know, they're covered really heavy in Chicago, um, the University of Illinois. Uh, but I went to Kentucky. I mean, that, that style of play was so um, – fit my, my style. I, Jamal Mashburn, I'm sure you guys know Mashburn. Mashburn yeah. was there, and um, he was one of my favorite players in college. And he was one of the 
he was considered like a big man, but he was like six seven, six eight. He could dribble, he could shoot, he could take it off. You know, so I kind of was like, man, I could fit right in um, and play that style. So when I chose Kentucky, that was really based off the style of play. And Masburn, my favorite player, and when I got there, Coach Patino gave me Masburn's number. He told me he was going pro. I have an opportunity to come in and play right away. So that was really the re- main reason I picked Kentucky. It just it just fit my style. So before even before then. When did you think about, you know, say you having an opportunity to, to go pro? And, you know, Kentucky, they, they stay with a, you know, a shitload of talent and pro players. And so I can imagine when you get there, the practices had to be off the chain. Oh, so, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, they were crazy. Um, it's weird. And I, don't, I know you probably went through this too, Pose. When I came out of high school, it was about going to college. Um, I think Garnett had came out the year before me. But he was one of the – I think he may have been one of the first guys to come out of high school. So mm-hmm. it, it was not thought about. So when I came in, it was all about going to college. and You actually thought about getting a degree and, and playing right. four years. You know, your mindset was so different when I went to college. So I never really thought about pro. You know, mm-hmm. you always thought in the back of your mind, man, I could be a pro one day. But after the 5-5, five, five, everybody wanted to go to college. You know what I'm right. saying? After watching them boys play, you, we all wanted to go to school. So when – um, I went there, obviously, Kentucky, we had a ton of talent. My first year was a little, was obviously very difficult trying to adjust. It wasn't, you know, I thought college was totally different than what it was. So it took me a while to adjust. So it took me almost to the end of the season before I hit my stride. But then that second year, um, when you talk about the practice, man, we were loaded. Off our 95, 96 team, we had 10 pros, uh, 10 guys to make it to the NBA. And wow. to be honest, our practices were better than our game. Um, and that's not, that's not being cocky or, or, you know, but that's just, it's the truth. We, I mean, we would be, we were, we won by a margin of like 24, 25 points a night. Um, it was one of those crazy situations every day we going at it. Guys were fighting for playing time, um, trying to get in the good graces of coach. I mean, and the thing about it, he was bringing them in left and right. Right, It wasn't wasn't like, it wasn't like you had time the way you had to get, get better. Or the train gonna keep going. So, and it was just, it was one of those things that it became very, it was difficult. I enjoyed college so much, and a lot of people don't know. It was, it took me to the last minute after my sophomore year to put my name in the draft because I was so excited about the next year. We won it. We was gonna win it again. Right. And the crazy part, even without me, they went to the championship game and lost <laughs> to Arizona, and then won it again in '98. That's how good the talent was there. So. A lot of people don't understand that. So I, I wanted to be a part of it. It was fun. College was fun. But obviously, you know, for injury purposes, Coach Patino told me I got to go. You can't take that chance of uh, passing up an opportunity or getting drafted in the first round. So it was just one of those things where, man, we had some talent. And we and the, and the crazy part about it, we all bought into it. And I think that's why we all ended up um, getting drafted. So so now you talk about the landscape of, of when you was there. I know you, you still follow, follow Kentucky basketball. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, you got John Calipari down there, you know. So what do you think about his, you know, his uh, recruiting tactics? I don't get some tactics, but the, the recruits that he get <laughs> down there and then just the landscape from where you came from to now, are they winning enough or w- what you feel? How you feel about that? That's a great question. Um, I love what he's doing. Um, I think when you're able to get four or five McDonald's All-Americans, top 20 players to come to a school and, and get them to buy in, um, I got to see this on the first hand for the last 
four out of five years, I've worked in the SEC network. So I was actually getting to see how he really operates and kind of seeing on a day-to-day basis. And it's actually, it's magical the way he gets the kids to buy in and play. Now me being, a, being, now, me being an ex-player going to Kentucky and everything, of course he's, we feel like he's failed a few times. Um, obviously, we want to win championships. He's had some really, really good teams. Obviously, college basketball is totally different. But um, his success rate and, and the runs he makes in the tournament, you got to respect. But I think he should have two or three more titles. Um, I look at that team that was 38-0 that lost in the Final Four um, to Wisconsin. They should have never lost that one. Um, and then a couple years back, I thought they should have won it again. And I know it's tough to do that when you bring it in fresh, you know, young guys. But um, I like what he's done. I mean, um, I'm a Patino guy, uh, but I do have to admit that Coach Calipari has been nothing but great to me. I'm not sure how he treats every ex-player that plays there. You know, it's tough. You got to think about it, folks. A lot of people don't know this. He's got like 40 pros all from the <laughs> University of Kentucky right. in like a 10-year span. Right. So he's built a new team. He's built a new culture there. It's just different now. You know, it's a one-and-done school for the most part. Um, you know, he's had a, a high success rate in turning guys to pros. And a lot of his guys are the top 50 guys in the league. You know what I mean? That produce it, you know, that are producing at a very, very high level. So it's weird when we go down there, especially older guys, and you go in the gym and it's all players that's in the league. You're like, man, none of like, you know, the old guys, the guys that get left, you know, in the late 90s, mid 90s, early, you know, we're not, we're not the focal point no more of the right. selling points of the school. But for me, he's done a terrific job of still keeping me a part of the program and, and, and um, he tries his best, but it's hard. I, I feel for him sometimes because he has so many great players of his own. Mm-hmm. And, you, and you know, well, you probably don't know, him and Coach Patino don't see eye to eye. Uh, <laughs> and that's like a real, people don't understand, that's a real dislike. Like they beefing wow. for real. So, but it's, 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 I like what he's doing. I mean, he, I do think there should be a couple more titles um, in there because of the talent that he's had. I think they they scoring a couple opportunities. So I don't know if he'd never get another one, but he continues to get the talent. So he'll be in the mix every year. Now, Twan, you talk about talent. You were part of the infamous 1996 draft class. Everyone mm-hmm. brings up the 03 class and the 84 class. Where do you put your draft class and why? Oh, I'll I put us number one. I think we're top to bottom from one to 60. I think a lot of people look at, you know, a lot of them draft classes are top heavy. I think with us, you're talking about impactful players that have at one point or another been either the number one guy or the second guy on their team. You got to look at the 96 class. I mean, yeah, Iverson, um, Mulberry, myself, Camby, when he went to Toronto, he was, they, they built around him. Um, you had Kerry Kittles, Steve Nash, Kobe Bryant, um, Lorenzo Wright, got, you know, rest in peace, Lorenzo was in our class. Sharif Abdul-Rahim went to Vancouver, started that organization. I mean, when you look at it from top to bottom, I'm just talking about from one to 60, and I can't, I don't give y'all the names here, but you get in that second round, we got guys that were impactful players. Don't mm-hmm. get me wrong, I know about 03, Brian, them, but they top-heavy. A lot of those teams are top-heavy as far as, you know, they first 10, 15 guys, but the whole draft, that I draft the best. And we all impactful. Everybody played extra role. Oh, I'm sorry. And Ray Allen. What the? I forgot. I forgot about Ray Allen. 
We loaded, man. <laughs> right. We loaded from top to bottom. So you go from, so we talked about Patino and Calipari, right? So you talk yeah. about their coaching style for college, and then you had a little bit of Patino in the NBA. Mm -hmm. He tried to bring that, that same Kentucky style to the NBA. <laughs> what did you think about that? Was it possible? Because <laughs> he was trying to get the guys that actually played in the system. If you think about that team that could actually, you know, get in there and press, pick up, and play helter-skelter a little bit too. How did you feel about him making that jump, and what did you think, you know what I'm saying, experiencing that yourself? I, guess I, did, I thought it was going to be hard to get guys to press at the, in the, at the pro level, to get them to commit to pressing 24-7. They, they wasn't going to do that. And it was tough. He did try to uh, bring in personnel that knew how to do it and that could do it, and it just didn't work out. Um, the real reason, I think, that with Coach Patino, the problem was is his impatience. You come from, he came from a situation where he won 75% of the games um, to 80%. He was going to be in the mix. He was going to have a chance to win a national title. And then you come to the Celtics and you got to rebuild. Um, we were in the rebuilding stage. We had just come off 15 wins. My first year, we was 15 to 67. So when you're taking over a team and organization 15 to 67, with the demands that people know this, Foles, you played in Boston. People in Boston want to win. They're African basketball fans. Right. They want to win. That's, right. that's what they care about. So it was a lot of pressure. And he took both, he took both jobs, which I think is, is very hard for anybody to do. He was the GM and the head coach. So he had both titles. And to be honest, it was like a revolving door. Besides Paul Pierce, um, it was a revolving door. He drafted Ron and he drafted Chauncey. I played with Chauncey for 41 games. How you trade Chauncey in his rookie year? You know what I mean? That probably was the first mistake he made um, in trading Chauncey Bills. You draft him three, nobody trades their third pick halfway through the season, but he did that. And he continually, you know, I probably played with, 50 ball players in two and a half years. You know you can't do that in the league. You got to try to develop some guys. I mean, he's helped guys, but, you know, think about it. I remember Bruce Bourne came through there. Bruce Bourne was with me in 99. Mm -hmm. And the pressing style got his, got his visibility up. People saw how great of a defender he was in the league. You know, Adrian Griffin was another guy that he kind of discovered, you know, that played in the league. Um, our boy D. Jones, Damon Jones got in the league because he, because he could shoot the three, and we played that type of style. So there's different guys that he's he actually helped their career, but his impatience um, was the reason why he was not successful. Um, you know, Boston demanded that, you know, they was looking for a turnaround. We had early draft picks. We had money. We had – the situation was sweet, and he didn't take advantage of it. So you mentioned Paul Pierce. Now, how did, how did y'all relationship form then, and, and what was it like playing with him? Y'all were both, you know, dominant mm -hmm. and the man at y'all positions. But for y'all to be that impact of a, a duo, explain how that was like during the season. Y'all was pretty much tag teaming, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Like, putting in that work. Well, Paul was good. See, Paul came in with a, with a, with a chip on the shoulder. So a lot of people don't know that. He's, he was pissed that he fell to 10 in the draft. He's supposed to have been like the top three pick. I'm not sure who went in front of him. But he came in with a chip on his shoulder. And that's what was great. He wanted to prove to everybody how good he was and how he should have been taken even higher in the draft. And then when he came in, after that first year, man, I just started to see an accountability to score the basketball um, from a lot of different ways, from his footwork, his mid-range game. 
So I was just like, man, this dude's going to be really, really good. And, you know, we just built a relationship, not just on the court, off the court. We started hanging together, started to feel good around each other. And that's how we was able to have such good chemistry. I was able to, to challenge him every day if I had to and him not get upset. He could say the same thing to me. Um, and I think by us being able to go verbally at each other and put each other in, under pressure to play well, allowed us to become one better friends and better teammates. And, you know, we was able to get the team at least back to respectability and also get back into the playoffs. That was our goal. And um, we was able to do that. And we worked our way in. And then you guys came in and took my title, man. Built it up and then y'all come took my title. It's all right, though. <laughs> now, Tuan, um, you were with Adidas back in the uh, mid uh -huh. to late 90s. And with Kobe and Trace McGrady, amongst other guys. How did the whole employee number eight campaign come about? Um, it was actually kind of weird. I did sign with Adidas coming out when I, when, uh, when I came in. So I was a Sonny Vaccaro guy. I don't know if you guys remember Sonny. Yep. So Sonny was, at that time, Sonny was the head um, guy at Adidas as far as signing athletes. And um, I was with Sonny when I was in high school. So he offered me a contract um, coming in. And employee number eight just came out very random. So I wanted to be number 24. And if you know the Celtics tradition, every number's retired. Just act posed. Right. Yeah. So every, 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 number's, every number's in the raffle. So it's very hard to get your number. So the night of the draft, you know how it is, folks. I'm on, I'm on cloud now. I'm happy. I don't, they, they ask me what number I want for the press conference. I'm like, man, give me eight, I guess. Because they're going through the numbers. I, so it's just like, I'm serious. It's like a, a random, just like, just give me eight. I'm cool. Right. Give me something. <laughs> give me something. Let's give me eight. And when I did it, so I really, and then the employee number eight campaign came from really Adidas. Um, Jim Gatto, uh, who was the head of Adidas uh, basketball right there, he basically came up with the whole slogan. Um, kind of used that number eight and the new kids on the block. Um, you know, because um, what's the boy's name? Uh, what is it? Uh, new kids on the block. Oh, the second group. Yeah, they're from Boston. So it was okay. just like a whole little little gimmick they put together, but it didn't never came from me. It came from Adidas. I get them a lot of credit. They put a campaign together, and then myself, Kobe, uh, Tim Thomas, and Tracy McGrady uh, would do a, a part of our contracts that we go overseas and go on these European trips for three three months, three weeks out of the summer, and that's how it, that's how it was. It was called really Adidas International, and we, they built this campaign to go over there and travel with and open up stores and, you know, autograph signers, basketball camps. So it was a combination of things, but it came strictly from Adidas and it was very random. It was nothing behind it. I wish I had a great story behind it, but it was just random. Gotcha. Now, how did you get the NBA Live cover? Because that was actually the first NBA Live I ever bought my own money, so mm -hmm. I'm very curious. <laughs> uh, how did you get that NBA Live cover? Because usually covers go to guys that have been league for a minute, guys that have been established, you know, a decade long, whatever it might be. But you got to cover your, I believe it's like your third year, second or third year in the league mm -hmm. when that came out. How did that come about? It's weird because um, 98, um, me and Kobe were the only two guys to make the all-star team on the 98 class. And um, I think that's where it came from. Um, Allen Iverson obviously was the man in our class as far as, you know, jumping out and having early success. But I was right behind them as far as that. And that's, that's the, that was the luxury of playing in Boston, I think, too. Being in a, a big basketball city where sports was important. And that's what, I, that's what I came up with. And my agent called me with it and was like, 
you know, they want you to be on the cover of the video game. And I hadn't really gotten into video games yet. So I was like, cool. And the crazy part about it, they finna make millions of it. And it's, it's, it was not really a big paying thing. I think I got like 50 grand, but you got like 50 grand. But the thing about it, you're going to be on probably hundreds of millions of covers. So it's like, a, right. you finna blow up. You finna be in that many households. Um, and I flew to Vancouver and put that bodysuit on and, and did all the moves for the game. And, you know, that was cool. That was a great experience and, and sitting there and watching them and see how they make a video game. But I think it really, really came because I was one of the first guys to make an all-star team on that 96 class. It was me and Kobe that played in that game. So at the Ball State, you had a couple teams, you know, here and there. Mm. But part being part of that biggest trade that landed us in Miami, <laughs> you know that, hey, did you know that in advance that that was a, a possible stop? I mean, I'm sure they probably wanted you more so than me at the time. I'll just put, put it there, you know, as far as whatever. <laughs> but did you know anything about that at that point of your career that uh, Miami was a possibility? Uh, it was Miami came in super late, and um, you know, I pose it's, it's different times that you want to be a free agent. And I just was a free agent at the at the bad summer, uh, where a lot of teams didn't have any cap space. So July one hit, and you know, I'm getting phone calls for the mid level. You know, seven, eight teams called me for mid-level. And I, I, I felt like I was more worth more than the mid-level, and I just was holding out. At this time, I had just switched over to Mark Baldestein, which he, he was representing you, too, at the time. When I switched over to Mark Baldestein, and I was just, like, waiting. I'm like, this, I'm like man, we got to figure it out. And we could get Boston to do a sign-and-trade. So they didn't want, Boston didn't want to take any money back on. So it's making it really difficult for me to have a place. And then we just called the Heat. Uh, called the Heat, and then Pat Riley and Mark figured out, listen, they got to wait. And this is the crazy part. So Pat Riley calls me and was like, listen, I need you to call Shaq and mm -hmm. to ask Shaq to take less money so we can wow. get you in. Wow. So it wasn't really about taking less money. Shaq was grandfathered into the old rules where, remember, we didn't see $30 million a year. Shaq could have made Michael Jordan money. Mm -hmm. So Shaq could have had like three years, $100 million, which has been like $33 million a year. That's what the Heat was about to pay him, something like that. So instead of doing that, Shaq took five years, um, five years $100 million and made it $20 million a year. So that mm -hmm. saved a ton of money right. on the cap. Right. And then the crazy part, Mark was like, you need to call the Celtics ownership group and tell them to do a sign. So I'm like, why do I got to call them? So I just called the owners, the ownership group and was like, listen, you know, I know me and Danny don't go, don't see the eye, eye to eye. He's not interested in helping me, but I did too much for the organization. You guys got to do something for me. And they agreed to it. They said, we're going to make Danny trade, do a sign trade. And then all of a sudden, all these bodies got thrown in, Pose. Said we, <laughs> it was so many people there. Dudes we never heard about, guys that made 500000 They were trying to get the money right. Like, it was just crazy. Right, right. And I think to the day, that's still the biggest trade in NBA history. Mm -hmm. If I'm not mistaken, it might be. But that's how that ended up happening. So that was the only way I could get to Miami um, and where they could pay me, you know, some money. They didn't have any money at the time, and they had to pay Shaq. And he was, he was obviously going to pay Shaq first. Oh, most, most definitely got to pay, pay big fella that. 
Yeah. So we, I mean, we get to we get to Miami, right? And like I said, mm-hmm. I'm I'm ex- I'm excited because one, I knew, you know, the year before, you know, what I'm saying like they were right there, and mm-hmm. so when they made the trade, it's like they want us to come there to basically finish the deal, you know, what I'm saying to to, to mm-hmm. bring a chip. And so I was excited, nervous at the same time. Do you remember the day of our press conference? What moment? <laughs> I mean, of course, I mean, we was there, right? We had the press yeah. conference. And afterwards, me and you, we go eat. You know what oh. I'm saying? We in Miami or whatever. And then, you know, Miami nightlife. We go. Right. <laughs> so we sit there at the bar. We chopping it up, chilling and drinking. And then we like, yo, man, like, we couldn't believe we was in Miami. You know what I'm saying? We was already getting, we was already thinking about the championship and everything. And yeah. then something hit us. Because once they told us, hey, you're going to have body fat and weight. <laughs> man, listen, I, it, was, it was a minute drink. And we was like, yo, we need to put this shit down. We need to put this drink down because it's going yeah. to be real. And we yeah. just like, start crying, laughing, whatever, too. But hey, we yeah. was dreading that body fat and weight stuff like that. Yeah, but you know what I'm we we made it happen though. <laughs> the crazy part, dude, you was already skinny a little. That's the thing about it. You was already. I'm like, how the hell he got body fat and weight? But no, that was that was that was crazy. I, I always tell people, people don't understand um, the culture in Miami. That's why even right now watching them in the playoffs, people like surprised. I'm like, nah. I'm like, Sposal is a scientist, mm-hmm. and, and you know he don't get a lot of credit for what he did, what he was able to do with LeBron. And I wasn't in that locker room, but I know Spo, and I know he played a big part in the boys uh, winning the champion, winning those couple championships and getting to those finals. But, and I'm just watching him now, so people don't know how good he is, but it was crazy because the Heat culture is, is solely different, and you know that, and, yeah. and we had to learn it. And people don't understand how much, I would say everything, that, that year was so crazy how we had to adjust in the NBA to what that one that body fat and weight adjust mm-hmm. to practice. Yeah. Um, you know, we had two coaches. We had Stan at first. People don't realize we had Stan yep. at first. Then we had to deal with Rouse when he came down. Yeah. Yeah. But I think but shit, to be honest, I, I really just think us continually to have fun off the court saved us. Yeah. I I, I you know what I mean it just kept it kept us sane. <laughs> you know what I mean? We was able to but the thing about it, like you said, a press conference, we knew. The one thing we knew, we knew we was going to win a championship. We didn't know how it was going to get done. Right. But we knew once we got in the playoffs, wasn't nobody in the East going to beat us in the seven-game series. Right. We knew Detroit was going to be – Detroit was going to give us a little run for our money. But besides that, we knew we was going to get to the championship. That wasn't the case and win it. So I just think our confidence was so high, no matter what, what happened throughout the season, if we stayed healthy, we was going to win it all. Yeah, I knew you talked about we had Stan first and then Rousey came down. Mm. And I remember, like, we was, you know, we wasn't playing our best basketball early. And I remember Zoe, he was like, man, listen, y'all don't want that man upstairs to come down here. <laughs> Hell. I remember that. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was one of those things where, you know, you know, coming there, and even though he was upstairs, it was about winning. And he, his experience of, of winning, you know, championships, you know, with the Lakers and everything. So coming there, and once he came down as a coach, it was like, oh, shit, everybody tighten up a little bit too. Right, but think, right. At the end of the day, it was, like you said, we was able to, to be us, and we probably did it the unconventional, traditional way of being, you say, the good way. Yeah. And we 
party, we practice, we play hard, you know what I'm saying? So we, we match the season out, and then we get to the playoffs. And, like, honestly, that was my first ro rodeo as far as, you know, being on the winning team and really having an opportunity. So I can't honestly say I knew when we were going to win it, but I knew we had a great chance. So for you, what point of the season did you know, like, hey, we about to, we going to win this? I think when, when Coach came down and kind of changed things up, I don't know if you remember, but I remember when I first came in and Stan had a long talk with me and was like, look, you know, we got UD here. You know, UD's been like a heart and soul for us at the Power 4 spot. He was like, look, I just need you to come off the bench. I'm going to run everything for Shaq and D-Wade. And I ain't going to, you know, you just go with the second unit. And I'm like, okay, cool. Whatever the sacrifice was, I thought, I just knew from that point, not just me, that was like the start where everybody kind of accepted their roles. And we was like, we're going to let Shaq and D-Wade be D-Wade and Shaq. And then we're going to do our part to like, you know, to help them out. But I would say for me, when I really started feeling like we could win it all, is when Willie Will Rouse came down and started giving everybody roles. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? When he, when he, when he started putting everybody in their, in their roles and, and once we started getting that continuity, like we knew I was going to start the game, like six minutes of the game, I knew you was coming to serve me out. Then I was gonna come back for UD. We all kind of knew what we was, we had to do every night, mm -hmm. um, and then it just kind of like dawned on me. I just I just knew it was gonna be hard, but I, I just knew once that point I said, "Man, we can we can win it all. We just stay healthy." I just started looking at the teams and started seeing how we match up. I was only worried about Detroit, right? Yeah, you know what I mean. We I was only worried about Detroit, so and my, that was in my mind. That right. I was only worried about Detroit. If we get past them, I know we got a chance to win. Now, I have a question for both of y'all, uh, since you guys are on the same team, obviously. And we'll start with Tuan first. You guys go down 0-2 versus Dallas in the finals. What's the mindset? Because usually going down 0-2 in the finals, we usually know how that works out. But you guys obviously came back, won that series, winning four straight. What was the mindset there? Uh, for me, like, I mean, it's my, obviously my first finals, so I was nervous. Well, um, I kind of, be honest, I kind of, you know, kind of follow Shaq Lee and, you know, kind of asked him and just kind of see what his confidence level was. And then I don't know about Pose, but Pat Riley, I think this is where, this is where he was great at. Uh, he never wavered. His confidence never wavered. He always believed that we was going to win. Um, and, and that was important coming from the top. They had a head coach always instilling that, that we was going to win it. And I think we, 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 but I was, I was a little nervous, but I was confident because we was going home and I knew we could, we could run the table at home. We got a chance, but it was from, it was really from the guys that been there. I would say Shaq and, and, and Pat Riley is the ones that kind of help helped me maintain confidence. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, Shaq, you know, he, he just kept, you know, encouraging everybody, you know what I'm saying? And uh, just being that support system as, you know, being a player, just being that support and that was big for me. Like I said, that was my first rodeo as well. And I'm like, damn, we down 0-2. And then, like he said, the ice on the cake is roused. You know, he never wavered. He was so calm, cool about everything, you know, just about everything. And so that, that sort of gave us, you know, we, we had confidence, but extra confidence. Like, yo, it's still nothing to worry about. All he kept preaching was, let's get the next game. Man, we got that, we got that next game. And shit, we start feeling ourselves. And once we tied it 2-2, two, two, shit, we got our swagger back and everything. You know, we start yeah. feeling good. And like I said, Shaq, he did his thing. D-Wade, he did his thing. And then for us, 
everybody else. We start. We had our moments during that series as well. And then on top of that, when Dallas, they was already print talk about they about to sweep us. They planted parades and everything. Shit, I, I took that real personal. Like y'all just gonna disrespect us like that. But you still got to play these games. Yeah. I was hot about that, and I think everybody else too. I think they was hot about it because it was when we, before we left Dallas. Listen, that was already in the paper, man. I'm like, yo, y'all yeah. got some brass wants to put some shit like that in the paper. You know what I'm saying? So I, yeah. I was hot about that. So of course, you know, just trying to win that next game, and and we did. Now, also being in one of the best party cities in the world. Y'all come back down 0-2. Y'all come back to Miami. What was the after party like after winning that ring? Uh, obviously, <laughs> you know, Miami is Miami uh, outside of Vegas, maybe L.A., maybe New York. Uh, Miami, I think it's Miami's number one. But what was the after party like? <laughs> we actually, because we won it in Dallas. So if, I'm, if I recall, we, we tried to party in Dallas for a little bit. You know, it was too boring. Coach was like, man, let's get on this plane and get up out of here. Well, so we ended up leaving. What time we left? Like at five in the morning, phone? Yeah, because we came back to the hotel. We partied there. Remember, Rouse was dancing. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Then we stayed there. We stayed at the hotel, and then we came back. Coach was like, "Man, let's get up out of here." We ended up leaving, um, and getting to Miami like eight in the morning. Mm-hmm. Yep. And that night we went to the strip club. Baby. We went to the Diamonds. I never forget. <laughs> we went to Diamonds. That's where we had our celebration party at at the strip club. Some undisclosed. Things happened in there, baby. We went. We had. We had a. We had a ball. I, we had a ball. <laughs> office, had, baby. The office. We had to meet at the office. We had a meeting at the office, man. Um, but you know, Miami. You, don't be honest, man. You know, people don't know. Like Pose said, we we party and played like never before. At least me and Pose and a few of us did. So we we enjoyed ourselves. It's nothing like Miami. I always tell people, I feel like we put Miami on the map. I don't think, you know what I mean? I really believe that. Not, not saying Miami was not known for partying, but we took that thing to another level. They had never seen, they had never seen ball players out as much as they saw us out. <laughs> <laughs> we, we put Miami on the map, I, I believe. But uh, that year was all, that was, was fun. That championship, that championship day, that, that, that Diamonds that night was incredible. We had the whole team out. We had the whole team, yeah. And it was crazy because, I mean, we had that party then, then everybody, like, of course, every club there we had a party in. And then yeah. that off-season, everybody else, we tried to party in everybody, everybody city. city. You know what I'm saying? We came to Chicago. We came to like, yeah. town. We threw a party. So we tried to just show everybody, like, respect by going back to where they was living at and throwing yeah. a party. And then we and all went out to Vegas. You know what I'm saying? And, and there was, like, that camaraderie there. Like, we was just party. And we was living it up, man. So th- that that was fun, man. That was fun. So look, so we we talking about that. So I think it was the following year. When was Super Bowl down there? The following year. The following year, right? Yeah. So we hey, listen. We still feeling real good. We still doing <laughs> everything from the year before, or whatever. Hey, Super Bowl was down there. We go partying. You remember that? <laughs> yes, sir. There, <laughs> that's really you know that's football season. You know what I'm saying? It, it's their time. You know, time to shine. We out in the club and everything, and Buggy like, hey, man, they can't come down here and party shit. We the champ. They can't come down here and party like that. I know it's their weekend. Man, we in the club. We, we matching bottles for bottles. Like, yo, they buy, listen, they buy five bottles. We buy 10 bottles. We like, yo, we out all night just clowning. We was like, yo, we still filming it up. Y'all can't shine on this like that, even though it's y'all weekend. But we had a good time, no. But then oh, that was you though that night. No, that was you. More, more wow. of you. 
you know, and I'm gonna tell you what football player it was. I tell you, it was Sean Merriman. <laughs> it was <laughs> Sean Merriman. And Pose got into this personal thing with him, man. With Pose, it was you. Man, I ain't do nothing. Yeah. <laughs> hey, do you remember how much our bill was that night? Yeah, yeah, we, we can't let them know what our bill was, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it was me and you only and some girls, man. That's crazy, bro. Yeah. It was a lot of alcohol being drank then, but <laughs> we had a, hey, listen, we had a good time. We had a good time. Yeah, so we had, had a good time. time. Yeah, you went out there with them boys, bottle war. I remember that. Yeah, that bottle war. We put, yeah. put, we put them to sleep, man. <laughs> we bought we bought so many bottles of clubs like look we just gonna leave this stuff here for y'all. They couldn't they couldn't even, they get they was like look y'all can take some of it home and then y'all can leave this in the car man. They was like we bought too many bottles. <laughs> I tell people that story all the time. People don't believe that that bottle war story that we had oh, with them boys. Yeah, yeah, we, with the football guys. <laughs> yeah. it, it, it was a a friendly competition, I'll say. <laughs> <laughs> It was Privé. I remember the club too. Oh, Privé, yeah. That was Privé. It was at Privé. I remember mm -hmm. the club. It sure was. So now with this landscape of the, how the league has changed, mm -hmm. what uh, what players are you impressed with now, and what players sort of you know resemble yourself? Because like I said, you was already doing things at, at that four position as far as handling the ball, shooting the tray ball. So, what players are you impressed with now? Uh, a couple guys. I mean, obviously LeBron James is still. You know, I'm still impressed with him. He's still able to play at the level he's in. Um, I do like Giannis a lot. Um, I do believe he got a lot of improvement to do on his offensive game, but I really like his versatility. Um, believe it or not, I like Draymond Green. Mm. Um, I like, you know, I like his skill set, um, you know, his ability to, you know, handle, make plays. Um, he's the one guy I like. Um, my favorite player would probably be West, Westbrook. Just because the energy and effort he brings to the to the game, I I really really like. And sometimes and now it's like shit. I wish I played in this era. I mean, I remember you know me shooting seven eight threes a game and, and getting criticized for it. I mean, and now it's the norm. You know, you see so many guys now that shooting shooting the three ball. So um, I enjoy the game because obviously I like the three ball to it. Um, it's different. It's a pick and roll game. You got to be able to pick. You know, it's a, it's a point guard's lead. Um, you got to be a, you got to be skilled now to play in this league. It's not really, you know, you do still got role players, but you know those guys can get swallowed up easily if you can't do one thing really good. You know what I mean? It's not mm -hmm. the same anymore. Um, so, but I still enjoy. I still enjoy very much so watching the league, and I do like some of the guys. Um, you know, skill sets and, and versatility. All the bigs now shooting threes, you know, pretty much every center. It's no, not really. You watch Joker, you know, you watch Jokic right now and those guys now. I mean, the versatility is, is, is good to see. So, of course, you know, I'm going to ask, who you got winning the series between this, this Boston Miami? It's a tough series. I think it's going to go seven games. Uh, but I like the Heat um, just because of their veterans. I think Jimmy, Jay Crowder, Andre Godala gonna make the right play late you know and that's not and it kind of showed in game one um if you really look at Tatum's shot compared to Jimmy Butler's getting right. to the basket getting fouled and not to say that you know Tatum can't do that but you know just being in the moments knowing that you gotta 
get to the bucket, get fouled, you know what I mean, make that possession count. You know, he'll learn that. The guys that get get to that point where they they get that, I just think, but the, even though Miami has a lot of young pieces, I just think their veteran pieces um, is going to come through for them. But I do believe it's going seven, six, seven games. Yeah, um, a, real, a, real, a real evenly matched um, series. Yeah, I agree with that, too. I, I mean, it's tough, you know what I'm saying? Just like I said, as far as winning the chip at both of them. But like um, like you said earlier, I don't think a lot of people give Spo credit. And then, like mm. I said, just the culture in Miami itself, like, it hasn't changed. Like, it's still no. So you're going to be tough, you're going to play hard, and you're going to compete every night to get yourself that chance to win. Mm. And so uh, and you might not be the best, the most skilled player on that Heat team, but it just works for y'all because y'all going to do it. Y'all going to grind it out. Now, we look Man. at the Boston team. Like, they have better skilled players, guys that can go get their shot. Right. And if you get, you know, on the island with them, ISO 101, then, you know, they, they can score the ball. So if they – they got to have a, a better balance of just actually still moving the ball from side to side and not mm. just being caught in those ISO situations. And if they do that, they have a chance. But if they don't, like I said, I, I do believe it's going seven. But then, you know, we'll see from there. I'm, I'm, I'm just taking the veteran leadership. And, and I do think – I didn't mention that, like you said, it could come down to a coaching, making an adjustment, making certain moves. To, to win that game. I just – I like the Heat. I give the Heat the advantage in that moment. And the last thing I say about the series, I just believe that this is Kimball Walker first rodeo. Mm-hmm. And, it's, you know, when it's your first rodeo, it's your first time there, you know, we, and you could tell – you could tell he was never out the first round of the playoffs because he's been kind of inconsistent throughout the playoffs. And I just think because it's his first rodeo, you know, he'll get better and better, but – you know, when you get there and you ain't never been there, you, you know, he don't understand that they give you $30 million for you to be Kimber. Right. <laughs> you know, you may have to wave them young fellas off, you know what I mean, a little bit and, right. and get it done. So I just think sometimes you can have to look too much firepower. And right. they, they, you know what I mean, where Miami, okay, we know Jimmy finna make this play. Right. Everybody be ready to shoot. It's kind of like we play. We knew D-Wade. D-Wade, be ready. You know how D-Wade hit you late. You <laughs> wave in the air, it just hits you late. You got to be ready right. to shoot. You know what I'm saying? You gotta, so you got to have that mentality. And I just think those little things like that, it, it, it seems very small, but it's big in the, in the schemes of winning games. Mm-hmm. Now, Tuan, obviously you're one of the original stretch fours when they start calling yeah. the term. Um, what part of your game do you feel that didn't get enough appreciation? Because you did a little bit of everything. You shot uh-huh. the rock, you handled the ball, you was able to score, rebound. What yeah. part of your game do you feel didn't get the – Enough appreciation. Uh, I thought I was. A, I thought I was a, um, a willing passer. I thought I was a better. I think people really kind of downplayed the fact that I could really pass the basketball. Um, and it came with different teams. I think I was with Boston. I handled the basketball a lot. I think probably my best year as a pro, where I felt like I was like my whole full skill set was at display was in Dallas, where you know Don Nelson was really the only coach I think that ever knew how to use my game. Um, really well. So I would say Dallas. I think, but I would say my passing ability um, went went untalked about uh, for me, um, in which I felt like I was one of the better passers, especially at my size. Now, also, where did the shimmy come from? Because that's one of the best <laughs> celebrations, either after <laughs> and one after yeah. a big shot, big deep play. Where did that come from? 
Hey, give us the shimmy, man. Let us see the shimmy, man. Let me see if you still <laughs> Boy, if you get a shimmy on a Sunday morning, you good, Paul. You <laughs> <laughs> no, I, it, it, actually, I really started dancing in college. If you go back to some of my college film, I used to dance in college a lot. But that was just some internal thing that we had just having fun. Because, you know, we had the press. So you really couldn't be dancing. You had to get back on top of that press. So it wasn't really a lot of time to really be celebrating. So coach told me, look, I don't care what what you do, as long as you get back in this press. But I just kind of from in college, man, dancing with the guys, having fun. Then when I went pro, it just kind of like happened naturally. I took control. Like you play the game with a lot of energy. We make a run. I get a bucket in the big time. It just come out naturally. And so once I get it, once once coach accepted it, I was cool. It was only one coach that Don Nelson was the only coach that asked me not to dance. <laughs> it was only one coach that asked me not to dance. Don Nelson was like, hey, uh, Walt, he used to say, he said, Walt, I don't want you to do that dancing. It, it irritated him. But besides that, every coach let me do it. Even Rouse let me do it. Rouse didn't even say nothing to me. Right. So, That's a surprise. Yeah, yeah, I know. It just came from college, man. It was not, I used to just dance and have fun in college. And, I just kept it going. It just became part of my game. Earlier you talked about, you know, uh, Chi-Town, the talent. You talked about mm. some of the, uh, the pro-am leagues down there, too. Once you got in the league, what was that summertime run like with other league guys? And also, what was those runs, runs like with the guy, uh, MJ? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Um. Jordan, what, was the, what was those runs like? Um, well, the summer basketball was incredible in Chicago. Like I said, in the prime of my career, probably from when from I got drafted from 96 to at least 06, 07, for like the first 10 years, we had 25, 30 pros in the league. So our run was, in, was, was incredible on, a, on an everyday basis. But it went to another level in 2001 when Michael Jordan decided to come back. Um, he changed it up. So obviously now you got to imagine you got – 20 guys from Chicago that's playing. Then you got Penny Hardaway, Gilbert Arenas, um, LeBron James. You got everybody flying in town, staying a week, staying two weeks, training with MJ. Um, and he changed the dynamics of the post. You got to think about something. We had referees. He mm. wanted to play with refs. So we had to play with real referees, pick up. The gym used to be so thick where I made this comment earlier, where you would actually live, you lose the first game, you may have to sit to. Mm. And then, so we had to really start having two courts and then the winners meet and play on one court. So it was like, it's just to get everybody a good workout and a run in, we had to start two courts. But you know how that go. Everybody want to be on the main court. Right. You know what I'm saying? The court playing against Michael. Uh, and the runs were incredible. Every day at two o'clock. So for me, it was great because Obviously, I had been kind of carrying the torch in Chicago as far as with guys who play ball in the summer league. And Mike called me in 2001. I just got eliminated from the playoffs. I think we had just lost to uh, New Jersey in the playoffs. I came home, and you know how it is, folks. We finna take us a month off. Finna <laughs> kick it, you know what I mean? All right. Mike called me. It's, it's May still. He like, <laughs> listen, I need you in the gym with me. I'm finna come back. Mm. You know, like I know, shit. Michael Jordan tell you to get to the gym. Yeah, you at the gym. You at the gym. <laughs> he was like, man, hey, man. So, and this summer, I had never. I mean, I I was a basketball junkie, so I would play four or five days a week. 
I never was big on like lifting weights. So mm -hmm. now the first thing I get with Mike, we with Tim Grove, we got to lift weights first. I'm like, oh, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? We're like, man, we got we to lift weights first, then we go shoot, and then we play every day at 2 o'clock. So this is like, I'm in a gym from 10 to 4. Right. We're in a gym from 10 to 4 every day. This mm -hmm. ain't like, this is like, hey, you know, you know, in the summer pose, we try to get it in and get it out. But we yeah. 10 to 4 every day, so I didn't, I didn't change my whole program up. Mm -hmm. I didn't get into lifting weights. I didn't get into now we do individual instruction. You know what I mean? But just to watch him, to one, to be a part of that and watch how he, you know, put his get, got himself in great shape to get back to the level that he needed to be to be competitive was unbelievable to watch, especially at 39. Mm -hmm. I could just imagine how he was at, right. you know, in the primary career. Right. He probably was. But yeah, that that them summers were great and he he took it to a whole nother level. Once he came, because you got to think, he made other guys now start playing pickup ball and didn't really particularly play pickup ball or something. You had these guys in the gym. And so from Monday through Thursday, he always wanted to give everybody the weekend off. So from Monday through Thursday, we're in the gym 10 to 4 every day, no matter what. What's your what's your best what's your best MJ story? Because I got one. You know our man Reg Brown. We had him on here too. And he, uh, he told us one about, about you and MJ going back and forth. I, I know, I know you got to get the gab at MJ, you know what I'm saying? He talk his shit too. But any, 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 uh, any other MJ stories? Because he, he oh, told when I guess he hit game bucket on you or something like that. And then you mm -hmm. get, you was mad. You talk about, man, I, everybody's scared of you in here. Man, I can do this and I got this, whatever, whatever. What else you got? And he named some type of car. We had some epic battles on the court. Uh, my best Michael Jordan story, uh, so many of them. Um, um, it's, it probably was when we won it, in '06. One thing he used to always tell me, you never won nothing. You don't know how to be a winner. Ooh. He always started in my face, you never won. You'll never be a winner. You don't know what it is. You ain't no champion. You're, so he was always drill that in my head. Right. So 06, he was actually not playing there, but we still hanging on the day. We are hanging out on a daily basis. So the day I won that championship was the day that it was that 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 day when I got a chance, when I seen him when I came home in the summer, was probably the best day of my life when I got an opportunity. Like, now who the champion now? And I was able to, you know, be in the elite category. Right. Um, that that probably was the moments, man. But uh, Reds not lie, we had some epic days. We could never play on the same team. We always started off. He picked his team, I picked my team, and that's how it was every day. And we challenged each other every single day. Every single day, we challenged each other who's gonna be the best, and that's what pushes. But I got epic stories with him. You know, my my funnest memories with Mike would be always be off the court, uh, right. getting you know having the opportunity to be in his personal life, be at his home with his family. Um, those are moments I never forget, and to be in that space where a lot of people don't get a chance to be. So um, I got a chance to be around them on a consistent basis up until he bought the uh, Charlotte Bobcat. Mm. Got you. Got up you. until he bought that team. Once he bought the team, he left. Got you know, you. once he bought the team, you know, he left Chicago. Yeah, he was fully divorced. He had kind of moved on. But prior to that, I, from '01 to I think '07, '08. Is when he bought the the Charlotte uh, I'm sorry, Bobcats, the Charlotte Hornets. Uh huh. 
Well, it was uh, about, well, yeah, it was, yeah, it's fine. Yeah, it was about, about that time. So I was with her for a long time. Mm. So, I mean, I know you're still involved with basketball as well, on uh, your different uh, uh, platforms as well. Uh, but also you have a book coming out. You want to tell us a little oh, yeah. bit about your book? Yeah, I got a memoir coming out. Um, I wanted to bring it out All-Star Weekend. It wasn't ready, and then the pandemic happened. Um, so it, it, it changed the, how I was going to market it and how I was going to really push it and, you know, try to sell it and book signings and stuff like that. So I actually really just been caught in limbo over the last six months on what to do with it, um, on how to market it, because uh, I'm self-publishing. So it's a little different business-wise. So just trying to make sure I make the right decisions. And I'm actually trying to wait it out with the with the pandemic. But I'm glad you gave me an opportunity to talk about it because while we did, we have – we did – we did pre-orders, so we we had several hundred people, which I'm very appreciative of it, that actually pre-ordered my book, and obviously now we're getting six months in, they haven't received it, so now we're starting to take a little time, but people got to understand. I've just been holding off trying to make sure that I do the right thing with it, but it's a memoir basically about my life, um, a learning tool for, for hopefully a lot of young guys from the mistakes I made to obviously the good, bad, the ugly trying to be very open and transparent um, and sharing my life story. I think one thing as athletes that we always get, especially for me, uh, people always think they know your story. And, you know, unfortunately with, with social media, the internet and stuff like that, you know, people can get a false sense of who you really are and not know who you, who you really are. So it just gives me a chance to tell my side of the story. It's kind of like going to court. Now, you know, you, you got, you got this certain image. Now I'm just giving you a, now I'm gonna tell my side of the story. I'm gonna right. tell my own personal journey, and um, it's good. I mean, it was fun to just sit down and talk and relive a lot of the stories and and figure out what I want to put in there. Um, and hopefully, it's gonna be a success. It's just a memoir and try to just address my journey um, throughout. I wanted it to be. Uh, I didn't want it to be a long, boring book. I wanted to be something, uh, and I didn't want it to be a basic autobiography too but I want to be some, some things that people probably just didn't know. Uh, kind of even like when we're doing a podcast and we share these stories, people will probably never hear these stories unless we're in these type of settings. So um, it's going good though. I'm just waiting, man. It's really, I'm just trying to wait it out, but just for business purposes, just making sure it's nothing, you know, just making sure that I um, do the right thing business wise. So I'm trying to, I don't know. I may have to just put it on ebook. <laughs> you know, we don't know what we're going to get back. When we gonna get back functioning? I'm, I'm, I didn't, could never imagine that we'll be in this place that we're in right now through this pandemic. So, eventually, uh, we're gonna make a decision. So, where, where can we, uh, where can we uh, go? You know, uh, I guess uh, pre-order now. Give, give everybody this information. Which so we, well, we did have it on www.goninginstant.com. We took it down because I felt bad because I couldn't give a date when it's actually coming out. Um, but we'll put it back up. But it's 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 called Gone in the Instant. Okay. So it's going to be on www.goninginstant.com, and we had it up on that website. The website's still active, but we're not letting people pre-order no more. We just stopped it. I got to give me a copy for sure. I'm going to buy a couple. Oh, oh, yeah, definitely. I'll let you know when it's ready, definitely. And then we can you know, really talk about it because we can get into some other stories that people may not um, know about. Bet, bet. Definitely. Now, uh, what would a post-basketball career – and now SEC Network, you're on Fox a lot. What yeah. advice would older Twan give younger Twan after looking back at everything? Um, 
Basketball-wise, I would, I would say, you know, your career could be short. Everybody's not going to be fortunate enough to play 10, 12, 13 years. Um, so make sure you – I would tell young guys, make sure you take advantage of this. That window to make a lot of money is very small. Um, but I would tell you, you know, just lock in, focus on, you know, your craft to be the best possible player you can be. So you can obviously make the most money you possibly can be and make because it's going to, it can, it, you know, at 32, 33 years old, I was done playing. So you got to, you got to keep those things in perspective. I think off the court and things that I've, I've, I think for most guys, it's generational wealth. Talk to young guys about having generational wealth because we're blessed enough to make enough money to take care of not only ourselves, our kids and their kids. And at 18, 19, where most guys are coming into the league at, they don't understand that. They're not thinking about that. That one day this could possibly end. So I, I was trying to invent in guys that, look, let's think about generational wealth. This lifestyle you're about to create right now and the way you live, you want to maintain that and continue to do it. You got to start thinking about um, generational wealth. And then also the last thing, and Pose can probably contest this, I try to teach guys how to say no. And I'm not a guy that used to say no a lot, but it's something you got to get in your vocabulary. Um, it's tough to do because you want to help so many people that have done things for you in your life, uh, whether it's family and friends and those type of things. But you got to get the word knowing your vocabulary um, if you want to be successful and continue to do what you love to do, play game, play the game you love to play, and then make sure that you're, take, you're, you're personally taken care of because you're the one running the suicides, running the sprints, and in the gym, getting up to 1,000, 15, 2,000 shots a day. So you'll never want nobody to take away your joy. Got you. Now also, um, there's a lot, like you mentioned, a lot of young players come into the league. They're basically getting generational wealth at a young age. Um, mm -hmm. If someone were to come, whether it's a, a guy in college about to come to the pros or a young NBA player, what advice would you give them? Or are you open to giving advice? Because some people don't really want to talk to younger players. They just want to be like, hey, figure out your own. Are you mm -hmm. a, or would you – give advice to younger guys that's coming up in similar situations that you were in? Oh, without question. Um, this year, um, I didn't think I told you, Pose. This year was the first year. I did not – I turned the SEC down and got an opportunity to go back to the league and do the financial literacy for all 30 teams. We got the 26 of them um, before the pandemic happened, but it was, it was the best thing I've, I've ever done and made me feel good to be back in the – obviously in there with the guys on the, on the, the real – the players. Right, right. You know, to be in there with the LeBron James, the James Harden, the Chris Pauls, and to be in the meeting and to get those guys to have an open dialogue and to share my story with the, with the current players that's in the league now and to, to see them get something out of it, to have these type of conversations were unbelievable. Um, it was the best, and, then, and everybody said this, this is the best financial education um, situation they've ever had. So I was very proud of that, to be a part of that. So, um it was something that I was, I was shocked that, that I got an opportunity to do. But when the opportunity came, I turned the SEC down this year and did that this year. So we got the 26 out of 30 teams. Um, I was with a company called Educor um, that brought me in. And then the Players Association, obviously, once they saw that I was involved, uh, really stepped it. But we, it was great um, to be able to travel this year through the whole season and be a back apart. I mean, I got pose. I probably went to every basketball game because you got to go in the night before. Right, and right. then, you know what I'm saying, so I got a chance to be back in the arena, see old people that I never, you know, I haven't seen in years and mm -hmm. be back in the mix. And um, it was great. Um, it, was, it, was a, it was a very productive. I had a great time doing it. And we ended up not doing four teams. Um, we supposed to get all 30 in, but we still got four more left. But 
hopefully I'm hopefully it's something they're gonna continue to do. Um, especially with the young guys coming in. So I'm always open to helping young guys. That's good. I ain't gonna keep you much longer because I know you wanna get to your bears. Uh, but with, this, <laughs> with all this, you know, social injustice going on, any uh, comments on that or anything going in the shot that you're a part of? Um, I'm watching. I'm very observing. I see a lot of guys. What I want us to do as a people, um, and, and it's let's come up with four or five things. I got a lot of police officers that are, that are my friends. You know, I smoke a lot of cigars, so I'm around a lot of police officers that smoke cigars. And... Um, we just, I wish we could come up with four or five things that can actually, that we can actually go out and get changed. And I think that's what training, I think we have to train our officers better to help them understand um, what's going on uh, in our community. Because you're putting officers in the community, especially in Chicago, they're not, they can't handle hostile situations. If you look at a lot of these situations, they just can't handle hostile situations. On top of that, they could be racist. You know what I mean? So you got that in your head, and then they can't handle hostile situations where these, a lot of these things can be de-escalated de without violence and without killing um, our young black men. So um, in Chicago, we, we have several activists. We don't have anybody strong that I really like, um, but I follow, because you know we have a lot of black-on-black -black crime here, which you, you know that, and it's, it's, it's a huge concern. Um, but for the national platform, I just wish that we could come up with five things. I always tell guys, I wish we can, let's think about five things that we can actually go and try to change in government. Um, I, like what the, I like that the players made a stance, but I think we still made a stance without having a plan. Right. You know what I mean? And then, you know, and, and, you know, so let's have a plan. Let's have a plan. Let's not just do it to do it. Let's have a plan. It's not about wearing T-shirts. It's not about wearing, you know, signing. It's about having, let's have four or five things and see if we actually can change some things. And if we do that, I'm with it. Um, it's, 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 it's obviously um, disappointing and sad when you see it. We constantly continue to see it. But it's going to continue to happen until we're able to change some of the things. we got to hold them accountable. If we do something wrong, we arrest it right away. We, we, don't, we don't get a grace period to go get fired, get our families together, get our money taken care of. We don't get that. And they're getting grace periods. That's something that we want to, want to change. We need to. See if we can get, they can get prosecuted like a normal person get prosecuted. You know, that'll probably stop some of these things. Take away their pensions. Take away, you know, it's a lot of things that we can think of creative-wise that we're not doing. I, I, protesting is, is great. It's important. It's the main reason that, you know, you got to do that. But when you have it came up with four or five things to, like, really hone in on, I wish we would do that and try to change it. That way we could feel good about this and start to see change. At the end of the show, I have a segment called Free Game. Mm. What free game can you get to people out here that's going to see this and listen to this as well? It could be basketball. It could be anything you want, but it's free game for the people out here. Oh, uh, for me, I think free game would be just the, the, the Antoine Walker story. I think you can, um, from a guy that's played the game and, and made a ton of money, um, that went through a bankruptcy, um, that's went through some trials and tribulations. You can always land on your feet um, and, and still have and be successful and have a good life. I think we got so many athletes and, you know, with entertainers, when they, when they financially fall, they, look, you, they get lost in the world. And, you, you know, we see it so many times with different guys. And I think, you know, the free game is just, that you got to always stay positive, stay humble, um, you know, keep God first, but also 
you know, treat people right. And when you treat people right, you know, things things usually tend to turn 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 itself around for you. And and you know, that's just how I that's kind of the creed I kinda of live under. And anytime I'm around people, I just how that's what I tell people. You know what I mean? Um only the strong survive. You know, that kind of that that slogan, you know, kinda of sticks out in my head. So if there's one thing about it that you can get through anything, if you just stay positive, you know, stay humble, um, keep God in first in front of you, and, any, and anything can be possible for you to, be, to get back on your feet. And you have a free game. Yeah. Hey, Boogie, listen, man, I appreciate you and I respect you yeah. as, as my friend yeah. and, and just a bond that we, you know what I'm saying, like over the years as well. If you look behind me, you know what that is, right? <laughs> yeah, I like that. that. Six I back that. Yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah, nice there. I'm in that poster. Oh yeah, yeah you're right nice here, poster. boy. Here, you know what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> but like I said, no, man, man, much love to you, man. Uh, thank you for your time. I appreciate you always, and uh, gotta get back to that shot soon. All right, bro. Let me know your talents, man. Thanks for having me on the show. Yo, this is James Posey. Thanks for checking out Posecast, brought to you by BasketballNews.com. You can check out Posecast every Thursday on all your listening platforms. Presenting sponsor of the postcast is greensupply.com. With everything going on in the world, it is more important than ever to stay safe. At greensupply.com, you can purchase masks, hand sanitizer, and other important health and wellness products, all in stock with same-day shipping. Best of all, listeners can get 10% off their order when using the promo code POSEY at checkout. That's P-O-S-E-Y. For 10% off your order of KN95 or cloth mask, hand sanitizer, or other supplies like forehead thermometers and UV boxes. Visit greensupply.com. That's greensupply.com today.